Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lost Teams Podcast. I'm your co-host, Anthony Cerdelli, and with me as always is my fellow co-host, Andrew Lennox. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm living, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well, too. Living, getting ready to travel back to New Hampshire for uh, for a few days and, and visit family and enjoy Lake oh. Winnipesaukee and just generally relax. That'll be fun. Absolutely. Can't wait. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, today, uh, today's episode, we're going to talk a little NFL. This team to me was actually, I mean, I always get super interested in the teams I do, but this, this team was incredibly interesting. Um, the Mm -hmm. Dallas Texans of the NFL, they were, uh, actually the last NFL team to fold and not be moved anywhere or be included in the lineage of any other teams. So the actual last NFL team to cease to exist completely Although, as you'll hear in the uh, in the upcoming story I'm about to tell, that does not mean they didn't have a ridiculous history and also a huge influence on football in the future, and in, in the NFL especially. So my sources were the Pro, a Pro Football Hall of Fame article for, on Pro Football Hall of Fame's website that didn't have a, uh, a title, or didn't have an author. Also, mm-hmm. Wikipedia and an amazing ESPN story uh, by David Fleming, Fleming called Meet the Miraculous Disastrous 1952 Dallas Texans uh, for ESPN.com. How'd that even fit on the, like (laughs) on the title? Oh yeah. It's just, I mean, it's ESPN's title format. Um, Right. But by Dave Fleming of ESPN. uh, And it was just this past November, 2020 that he wrote it. So strongly suggest you visit that, that if you're interested more in the Dallas Texans, because I did, I included a lot from that article, but there's a lot of more interesting stuff that I did not include that uh, I think you guys would be happy to learn about. So, Story of the Dallas Texans. They were founded in 1952 in Dallas, Texas, as you probably could uh, guess from the name of the team. They played at the Cotton Bowl, which was uh, home to SMU, Southern Methodist University, for about half of their existence. They only existed for one year, and then they traveled around the, the country for the second half of their existence. They were called the laughing stock of the NFL for many reasons, but they're, I mean, equally... Of not a, there were a few reasons that they also were were had reasons to be proud. There there was some crazy stuff going on. So they were founded by Giles or Giles and Connell Miller, a pair of young millionaires. Giles was only thirty two at the time, uh, and had, they had inherited a textile fortune from their parents. Nice, not their a bad record, deal. No, not at all. Their record was one and eleven. <laughs> mm. Uh, the reason they ended up in Dallas is because they were formerly known as the New York Yanks and they played at Yankee stadium, but he kept losing money. Uh, the owner of Ted Collins kept losing money on the Yanks. So he sold it back to the league, which is important. So the league owned the team, uh, until Giles and Connell Miller bought it from them and moved it to Dallas. They had a couple hall of famers, future hall of famers, Art Donovan. He was a lineman. Donovan was a, a pretty interesting character. He said of his time in Dallas, and I got this from the ESPN article, those few months living in Dallas were some of the craziest times of my life. Uh, I'd never give it up for a million bucks. Uh, there was also Gino Marchetti who would go on to become, or Marchetti who would go on to become an NFL Hall of Famer. There was Chubby Grigg, who apparently was also an oil executive while playing in the NFL. Two jobs. <laughs> and this is, in his case, uh, meant he owned a two-pump gas station and a catfish camp in his East Texas hometown of Longview. Uh, and the description from the article is a cartoon character come to life with a wavy shock of strawberry blonde hair and a giant gap in his front teeth. Brig liked to, in quotes, hide under a parka at the locker room during halftime and squeeze four concession stand hot dogs into his meaty fist and down them all at once. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, he drink it like a Coke too. Oh yeah. He did. He, um, no, he drank probably a beer. There's a story I'll tell at the end of this kind of a postscript, um, from this article that <laughs> is, is sad. Chubby Grig was a funny character, but he was also, uh, something tragic happened at the end of his oh. life. Well, um, I was going to say it was probably smoking a dart too, but if he, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, that that'll be the least of the things you'd be surprised by. I mean, okay, that, that would be right. what come to expect after you hear the rest of the story. Okay, they had George Taliaferro, who was the first African American to be drafted in the NFL. Uh, he was drafted by the Chicago Bears, but instead of playing for the Bears, he had already agreed to play with our old friend, uh, the Los Angeles Dons of the All American Football Conference. He played there for a couple years until the AAFC merged with the NFL, and that's when he joined the Yanks, who ultimately became the Texans. Sure. And he was pretty good. At the age of 24, he completed 13 passes and scored seven touchdowns. He averaged 5.3 yards per carry and 37.9 yards per punt. Led the team in returns, forced fumbles, and interception return yardage. Uh, and he's quoted, this is a, from a, a quote from a book about him uh, in the forward by Tony Dungy. George helped change the landscape of football much the way Jackie Robinson did for baseball. So George Talfiero, which is a name I had not heard until I did research for this team, is a big, a big name in, in the NFL history of integration and uh, breaking the color barrier in the NFL. Inter- interesting. I've never heard his name either. But. So Tony, does, the previous quote was, was the forward of the book by Don Knight called Taliaferro. Um, and he said, every African-American in the NFL owes a debt of gratitude to George. So back to the Texans, the Texans were the first ever major league team in Texas. So before that, it was, there was a lot of football around, I'm sure baseball, but it was all college and high school. Interesting. I'm surprised by that. Texas has so many professional sports teams. Well, this was back in the fifties and, and, uh, yeah, I'm just surprised by that. There wasn't any franchise there by now, by then. Yeah, but but I think people saw it as like a college a college town, like or a college state. There were uh, that's true, and this is kind of the strategy. So I'll get into this very very soon, but or I'll just talk about it now. So the the Giles and Connell, their strategy was to tap into this football crazed state of Texas. But at the time, like we discussed in previous episodes, college football was way bigger in America than than professional football was. Like we talked about the college all stars playing the NFL all stars and winning and that type of stuff. So this is kind of in that same generation where professional football was an afterthought. Sure. Uh, they were an expansion fra- franchise technically, although they had the New York Yanks entire roster and they had been before the Yanks, the Dayton triangles. And before that, the Boston Yanks. So technically uh, they moved around a bunch, but they were, they were actually an expansion franchise. The Di- Dayton triangles, the Dayton triangles. I think that was found. I think that was the founding, uh, I remember I, that's the one team I've heard of in this all Yanks. We may have to do the, the Dayton (laughs) triangles. It's a great team name. Dayton, Ohio, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because of the Miller's, uh, uh, purchase and, and Texas being a college town, a college football craze state, people thought that they were crazy. Uh, they purchased the team for $300,000 and afterwards, according to the CSPN article, got bags of mail asking for a similar handout from them because everyone thought it was such a bad investment. They were like, hey, if you can spend $300,000 on a football team in Texas, professional, you can buy me a car. Uh, so, wow. But um, they weren't perturbed. Uh, their future Hall of Famer, Art Donovan, who I mentioned, mm-hmm. this is, said, in national popularity polls, pro football ranked just above synchronized swimming. So wow. you could see 
people weren't uh, too confident. Miller told the Saturday Evening Post after his team folded, uh, he considered each letter that he got a vote, uh, electing him the nation's number one chump of 1952. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. But there were some people who at least feigned optimism. There were, there were some who were, were at least pretending to be optimistic. Chicago Bears owner George Hallis, or coach, he must have been, I think he was her coach. George uh, Hallis, yeah, is very famous yeah. name with the Chicago Bears. I'm pretty sure he was a coach. Yeah, I might have to delete. I'm going to have to re-record that. Yeah, he was like Vince Lombardi time, wasn't he? Oh, no, he did own them. Oh, he wasn't a coach? Yeah. He, he was a coach. A coach? No, no, he was a coach and an owner. Okay. Okay. Uh, so there were some people who at least famed, feigned optimism that the Texans would be successful. Chicago Bears founder, owner, and coach George Hallis said a team in Dallas gave the NFL a true national flavor. And Steelers owner Art Rooney predicted the NFL crowds in Texas would triple the Yanks' attendance. Jeez. According to this ESPN article, uh, one of the I think Giles because Giles really took over the ownership I think or was more of a was more of a um, a, a part of it said that uh, he wondered aloud if the seventy six thousand seat Cotton Bowl would be big enough for his groundbreaking franchise. It would not be. It would be way too big. <laughs> uh, Miller's luck basically, and and the and the uh, the Texans' luck really started off badly in the first place because they were owned by the NFL. When the Yanks owner sold them to the NFL, the commissioner was in charge of kind of controlling the, the personnel movements and stuff like that. That was Burt Bell, uh, who, like I said, was the NFL commissioner. He was responsible for making the football decisions and traded away one of the Yanks and then the, uh, the Texans best players. And instead of getting a new coach, they decided to keep their, current coach, Jimmy Phelan, who won out over uh, rumored candidates like Curly Lambeau, Bear Bryant, Sammy Ball, who was, remember, slanging Sammy from one of our early episodes who played for the uh, Boston Braves, who became the Washington teams who will not be named, who are now the Washington football team. Right. So Bell also made Miller pay the Yanks remaining $200,000 $200, they owned to lease Yankee Stadium for their game. So already put one foot in the grave on that one. That's quite a bit of money. Uh, so you have a bad coach, you don't have good players and you're paying money f- to a stadium you've never played in, in a different city. So yeah, that's terrible. That is terrible. Their coach also, Jimmy Phelan, uh, was notorious. He was kind of like the, uh, the Joe Madden, if, we, if I can use a baseball reference of their day only, he didn't seem to know anything about the actual sport. He just was more quirky than he was anything (laughs) his most rigorous drill uh this is coming from that article again when he bothered to show up for practice at all was a volleyball game between the offense and the defense using the crossbar of the field goal as a net what (laughs) once he didn't show up to practice yeah that's awesome what gets better once while playing the los angeles rams feelings charges opened up practice with two successful screenplays the old man blew his whistle and put up his hands for everybody to stop Save it for the Rams, he yelled. Everyone on the bus. A half hour later, the entire team was at the racetrack in Santa Anita. <laughs> <laughs> what a joke. This is just a shit show. It is. Players had to fight over socks and shoulder pads and equipment. They just apparently dumped it all in the middle of a room before practice, and they all had to grab what they could get. Uh, he, he decided to hold training camp in the hottest part of Texas. Uh, wow, picked- those, are the, those are the days where they punish players and not let them drink water. Exactly. Oh. 
and uh, Phelan decided, uh, basically picked his roster by walking in a circle in the locker room and pointing at each player and saying, you're gone or you're good. Hmm. George Young, who was uh, become would become the future general manager of the New York Giants, uh, basically said of the Texans, one of the worst dog-ass teams ever assembled. We were better organized than the Little League teams in my hometown than I went. We were better lit organized when I was playing Little League in my hometown than I was with the, than we were at the Dallas Texans. That's crazy. What, what a just joke. Marchetti, uh, at age 91, he was a, he's the last living Texan player mm-hmm. uh, in 2016, told the podcast, practicing with the Texans, we either played volleyball or just sat under a tree telling stories. So we I got to plan be, that team. Yeah, we got to be pretty good <laughs> volleyball players, and we were pretty good at drinking a beer or two. Yeah, that's uh, funny. That reminds me of a funny story from here. So I, when we, the first year, I think we moved to Manhattan Beach, I, I was playing fantasy football and <laughs> I, it was um, anyone who's lived in Southern California and follows USC and college football. Uh, Reggie Bush played for USC and, and mm-hmm. was popular in the area. So when he was playing in the NFL, he came back and they did a charity tournament or charity game in the middle of the, uh, in the middle of the um, Manhattan beach open volleyball tournament. And Reggie Bush and Joyke Bell, who were both running backs on my fantasy team were playing volleyball and they were good. <laughs> And I'm I was sure. like, no wonder my fantasy team sucks. They've been spending their whole time playing volleyball. <laughs> That's great. As some might expect, uh, 1950s Texas didn't exactly welcome a racially integrated team mm-hmm. because Tal- Talia Farrow and George Young, who were another was another player on the uh, Texans, were both black. Uh, Dallas was a, had a, a lot of problems with racism. It was the Jim Crow South in that era. It was mm-hmm. very difficult for those two players. Oh, yeah, I can't imagine. Uh, but the owner, the main owner, Giles Miller, def- tried to defend his players, saying, "Places are on our team are open strictly on the basis of ability, without regard or without regard to race or creed." So he was uh, he was very. I mean, in some ways, he was um, important in in integrating the sport of football and and supporting the black players on his team. But as you'll find out in other ways. Not so much. Uh, a couple of years before, in 1950, 12 black families in Dallas had been attacked by bombers for moving into a white neighborhood, and no one was ever convicted. Oh, yeah, uh, no words. Yeah. And, and though Miller supported his black players, ultimately he didn't go far enough in supporting his team's black fans, who were fans because the team was integrated. So they, were, they had brought in, uh, they had attracted a fair number of fans, uh, African-American fans from that area because they had black players. They were one of the first teams to have black players. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were given reserved seating in the stadium and, and given the chance to buy season tickets. But unfortunately that section of the stadium was in full sun. It was obstructed view in Texas. So they boycotted and they stopped coming. They were like, you stick us in the worst seats in the stadium. We're baking in the sun. This is terrible. Uh, there's, yeah, there's no, like, why would you go? That's just, you're being treated terribly. Yeah. And that combined with the white fans boycotting the team because they didn't like that the team was integrated mm. really caused the, uh, a, Poor fan turnout. Besides the fact that, like I'll get to in a second, the team just sucked. This uh, team just needed to fold. It's just <laughs> awful. Yeah, but it's it's interesting uh, the the stuff that can, that happens after. So uh, they had other stuff to watch as well, like college football. So it was it was a different uh, different era. Miller uh, did try to be. Uh, charitable to other causes in his fir- in the first game Miller offered free seats to anyone who donated donated a pint of blood toward the war effort in Korea mm-hmm. he hired a helicopter carrying Miss Dallas Texans to land at midfield and released a balloon with a big gift certificate to a local restaurant that a lucky fan would 
get to go to. For five bucks. Yeah. Their largest crowd was their opening game, uh, as we've spoken about the the boycotts and the treatment of the black fans. So that was really when they realized what was happening. It was at the Cotton Bowl, 17,499 fans came. The Texans scored in their first game on a fumble by future Giants, by the Giants Tom Landry, who would go on to become the first head coach of the Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. So, uh, and Landry, and more on that later, the, the Cowboys kind of have an interesting role in this. Uh, and Landry would go on to win 20 consecutive se- or have 20 consecutive winning seasons and win two Super Bowl titles with the Dallas Cowboys. Um, but uh, on this game, in this game, unfortunately, he fumbled the ball to the Texans, who scored a touchdown, but then missed a field goal. Those are the only points that they'd scored the whole game. They lost 24 to six to the Giants. Jeez. They missed uh, their first six. They missed their first six extra point attempts of the season. So really not doing well. This is like a high school JV team. Oh, it gets worse. <laughs> so before their final home game in Dallas, so once their fans stopped showing up, the the owner of the team, Giles Miller, couldn't afford it anymore. He was losing too much money, so he sold it back to the NFL. And the NFL tried to make it a a, a barnstorming team, basically. Right. They were still called the Dallas Texans, but they played all over the place. But before their final home game in Dallas. Phelan said, men, I'm not telling you your paychecks aren't any good, but if I were you guys, I'd run to the bank. <laughs> and then Get the, there, quick. Uh, the ESPN author who wrote the article said, the mad dash that ensued may have been the Texans' most grueling conditioning workout of the season. Yeah, there was no conditioning. <laughs> no. Uh, they couldn't make, he couldn't make payroll. Cigarettes and beer. Yeah, and telling stories and volleyball. That sounds like beach volleyball. Yeah. Um, they couldn't make payroll, so Miller sold the team back to the NFL, like I said. They tried to have them play in Hershey, Pennsylvania, but that didn't last uh, very long either. The Texans only lasted 47 days in Dallas, so really a short stint. So basically a month and a half. Yeah. Wow. Their final game against the Bears, though, would become legendary. Mm-hmm. Everyone thought it was going to be a total shit show. The Bears were a powerhouse, uh, but there was uh, some, some interesting things brewing from the uh, ESPN article that said there was an article in the local newspaper that said Texans burial due. Uh, and it was uh, a preview of the matchup between the bears uh, who had just beaten the defending NFL champion, Detroit lions and the quote, hopeless, homeless and hapless Texans who ranked dead last in every statistical category and spent most of their practice time fishing, playing volleyball or guzzling suds. Uh, their final please, game. <laughs> please get me on this team. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the final game was against the Bears in Akron's Rubber Bowl, so Akron, Ohio, home of LeBron James. Mm-hmm. Uh, a doubleheader that started with two high school football teams playing against each other and culminated in Bears versus Texans. Wow. The first game, the high school game, had 30,000 spectators. Then about 27,500 of them got up and left. <laughs> Uh, really for the nfl game yeah there were so few fans of the nfl for the nfl game that uh and this is another story from that espn article there there were so few fans in the stands that in his pregame remarks texans coach jimmy Phelan suggested that rather than introducing the players on the field they should go into the stands and shake hands with each fan and that's what they did what a weird situation yeah, it was so cold in the stadium. Both teams lit tri- fires in the trash cans on each side of their bench to stay warm. And Donovan would go on to say, uh, we looked like a bunch of bums, like literally bums. Uh, they actually won. So this is the crazy part. Uh, George Hallis, seeing 
his opponent's players walk into the stands and shake their hands of the fans were basically, he basically was like, what a bunch of jokers. This, <laughs> this is going to work. Yeah. <laughs> so he started his, all his backups, which really frustrated and pissed off the Texans players, especially Talia Farrow, who grew up in, I think in Chicago and idolized Hallis and, and the bears. So he was pissed yeah. that he didn't get to play against the real bears. So it motivated him. And also buddy young got just absolutely crushed, apparently violently into the end zone for a safety. After a year of, of seeing Young and Talafiero endure all this racism in, in, in the Jim Crow South in Dallas, their teammates rallied around them and responded and actually played a good game. Good. They, had also, they had also just acquired Frank Chapuka, uh, I'm probably saying that wrong, from the Chicago Cardinals. He had played at Notre, I believe at Notre Dame before that, uh, and he played very well for the time, 16 for 26 for 205 yards. And he he led, was a quarterback, right? Yep, and he led the team to a 20-2 to two lead. That, that's interesting because I remember his name and um, going to a, some Bronco games. He's on the Denver Broncos Ring of Fame. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah, I'm looking up. He was uh, played for the Texans, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, the Ottawa Rough Riders, who played in Canada and the U.S., the Broncos in the 60s from 60 to 63. That's impressive. Yeah, another cool story about him. Uh, he he actually wore number eighteen, and he allowed Peyton Manning to wear eighteen when he when the Broncos signed him. Oh wow, that's pretty awesome. Behind uh, Tripuka, they got out to a twenty-two lead, and after the Bears put them at that point, Hallis was like, uh, "We can't lose this game," so he put their starters back in. The Bears regained a twenty-three to twenty lead uh, in the fourth quarter, but Tripuka led the Texans to an eventual 27, 23 victory, which was considered the greatest upset in NFL history and still might be, I mean, just considering uh, yeah. you talked about some of the upsets in this era, like the, I'm thinking Patriots Rams in the Super Bowl in 2001, uh, that whole thing, like that was an upset, but this, that the, these are, com- those were competitive, serious teams who had coaches who had, th- had like dogs in the fight and, and ownership wanted to make money. This just seemed like a joke. Complete uh, joke. Yeah. So it's the, uh, considering all those facts we just talked about, the fact that they beat the vaunted Chicago Bears is, I can see why that would be the greatest upset in, in NFL history. Definitely. Uh, this is a quote from that same article. This article is great, by the way, that ESPN article I mentioned at the beginning. Sounds Everyone like should it. go and read it. Hallis seemed to sense the historic nature of the debacle going on before anyone else. As the Bears were making their way off the field, the incensed coach ran up behind and began to kick his players in the backside. Hours later, Hallis was still – the game happened on Thanksgiving. So hours later, Hallis was still not in holiday spirit. As the Bears headed back home to Chicago on their charter flight, a still enraged Hallis went up and down the aisle of the plane, slapping the special Thanksgiving dinner out of everyone's la- – out of their hands and into their laps. Uh, what a guy. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Dallas uh, celebrated their Thanksgiving victory by going and drinking themselves into a stupor over like Why was multiple days. <laughs> Trapuca said, we didn't go to bed all night after the win or the next night either. They drank all season anyways. What, what would be <laughs> the difference? A lot. Yeah. Uh, that game was the worst attended game in NFL history that upset over <laughs> Chicago in front of 2,500 fans. And the only time... There have been fewer fans. That was since 1939. So before mm-hmm. that, there were spart- more sparsely attended games. But that number basically still stands unless you count the pandemic and games <laughs> where fans weren't allowed in. Uh, it bankrupted one of the youngest millionaires in America in the Miller Brothers. Uh, and the Texans are, like I said at the beginning, the last NFL team to cease operations and not be tied to the lineage of any other NFL team. But 
they would have their absence would have a huge impact on the landscape of the NFL going forward. Okay. So when the Texans folded, you're going to recognize this name, Texas oil tycoon Lamar Hunt tried to convince NFL owners to reconsider uh, a team in Dallas. But after the debacle that was the Texans, uh, they didn't really agree. So as a mm-hmm. result, Hunt started the American Football League, the AFL, as a direct competitor to the NFL. The AFL is what we now know as the AFC, so uh, the AFC Conference. So he founded a team in that league called the Dallas Texans in 1960. Uh, he then would move them to Kansas City, where they became what we now know as the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay. Uh, and so when the NFL saw that, they were like, hey, we need a competitor. When the NFL saw that they started a team in Dallas, they, they basically he called their bluff, and they're like, hey, we need to start a team. So that's when they started the Dallas Rangers in 1960, uh, who would then become called the Dallas Cowboys. So with the absence, with the Texans folding, I mean, it caused a huge wave kind of throughout history that culminated in not only a new league that made the NFL bigger, but the, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, it's interesting how many, like, just old school ties. All these teams we do have some ties to another another team and another team created and so forth. And that's not every, and that's not, that's not all of it either. So even though that's their lineage is not tied to any other NFL teams, the remains of the Texans. So like the equipment that they still had in their assets, I guess, or lack of assets were sold or given to a group in Baltimore headed by Carol Rosenblum, who started the Baltimore Colts, who then moved uh, to become the Indianapolis Colts. So Mm -hmm. uh, they just, the, the, terrible Dallas Texans died and became this uh, fertile ground for (laughs) all this other stuff to happen. Sure. Um, So the last but not least, I'm going to talk about a couple of the, uh, a couple of the players and Mm -hmm. how things happened after the team, uh, the team disbanded. So I talked about uh, George Taliaferro and Buddy Young. These Mm -hmm. are both from, uh, from this article on ESPN, the Texans lone pro bowl selection in 1952 played another season and a half in Baltimore with the Colts and then retired in 1955 after being traded to the Eagles. His wife, Viola became the district court judge in Indiana and a special advisor to attorney general, Janet Reno. Yeah. And I can't imagine, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, but just what these, those two players you mentioned went through in Dallas, it just sounded, sounded miserable. Yeah. Uh, Buddy Young played three more. He was the other black player on the Texans. He played three more seasons in Baltimore and in 1956 was the first cult to have his number retired. In 64, he became the first African-American executive to be hired by a sports league, I'm assuming by the NFL, but it doesn't say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in the 80s, while working as the NFL's director of player relations, he died in a car accident. But geez sad, but successful. I mean, successful. Very successful. Trailblazing career. Yeah. Chubby Grigg, who was the guy who would uh, hide in his parka and force down hot dogs and drink beers, yeah. uh, he had the sad, the saddest ending of. I mean, they're all kind of sad of of kind of epilogue. Uh, he walked into his twenty year old son's room on October thirty first, nineteen seventy seven, in a small town in Texas. Gently folded his child's arms across his chest and shot him in the temple. Oh my God. After his son had been expelled from high school because of long hair and also taking Valium and marijuana, uh, Chubby was tired of trying to get his son to be sober and, and trying to, uh, uh, put him on what he saw as the straight and narrow. Uh, so he decided he had no choice but to kill his son after repeated failed attempts to help him get sober. 
after a one-day murder trial and jury deadlocked nine through a jury dead wow i can't speak right now after a one-day murder trial and a jury deadlocked nine to three in favor of acquittal chubby pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter and received a sentence five years probation and he said and quoted as saying i'll tell you this world this old world sure is different than it was like that's just <sighs> fucking insane yeah, I, I just, I can't even comprehend, like, so how is he not, he should have got life. Yeah, I mean, it's probably because he was, a, a, I guess, a well-known football player in Texas. I mean, his 70s Texas probably was not very uh, just, just like 50s Texas probably isn't. Right. It wasn't. Um, but yeah, and then the quote that I didn't add, so when they when they beat the Bears, he was like the most notorious of the drinkers. The quote said, uh the very same Texas player who in his early twenties nearly drunk the town of Hershey dry. So Hershey was where they were celebrating after they beat the bears. Right. He sounds like he had a lot of problems, obviously. Yeah. And then Giles Miller, the owner, uh, he, uh, he was not doing very well. So it was, it was kind of, he was swindled. They say swindled by the NFL and its commissioner. So you can see why Hallis and, and Rooney were like, yeah, yeah, we totally, (laughs) they're totally going to do well. Definitely start a team and, in Texas and then uh, tied one hand is behind his back, gave him terrible players and just caused the debacle we just talked about. Right. Uh, it says, although the number to buy them was more commonly reported at $300,000, the Miller family believes Giles may have lost closer to a million dollars on the Texans all in less than 10 months. Giles spent the rest of his life trying to get the money back. He bought an insurance company, tried a movie, tried to produce movies and media and even got into politics it all failed uh, a lifelong smoker in 1989 he died with lung cancer so sad story funny at times for the texans but uh quite a quite a historical franchise yeah very historical but as at the end here some some tragic stories for sure yeah but they i mean like we'd like to say remember the good times remember the exactly remember the playing volleyball and telling stories under the tree and drinking beers when you're supposed to be practicing because you're a professional football player yeah that's so so weird i've I've never heard anything like that yeah like i've heard the practice stories of like guys you literally being unable to drink water to be punished you know yeah that's just ridiculous can you imagine that now yeah no i mean that's why the players associations exist right Anyway, that'll do it for the Dallas Texans. Uh, Andrew, anything else you uh, you want to add? Uh, no, not really. Just uh, like I said, um, great story. Some tragic events, obviously, you know, and unfortunate that there was those players had to deal with all that racism. Thank you. You want to tell anyone where you where you can they can find your work or uh, where they can find you on social media? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at a w l n l e n n. Got it. You can find me on Twitter at Deli Tweets. That's D-E-L-L-I-T-W-E-E-T-S. You can find me on Instagram at The Media Deli. And yeah, we will see you guys in the future. We might take a couple, a week or two off uh, with my trip. And Andrew's got some, some family in town. So uh, we might not be able to record an episode next week, but we've got uh, a couple coming out for you coming up. So stay tuned. Take care, everyone.